Father, as we look at your word this morning about your son, as we've already sung about, I pray that you'd open the eyes of our heart to see and know your son more fully. In Jesus' name, amen. If someone compared you to an animal, barnyard or otherwise, what kind of an animal would they see? Just think about this for just a second. If someone compared you to an animal, what animal might they compare you to? This is a question with a point. You know, there are personality tests. Typically, if people talk about personality types, there's four personality types. You can take all kinds of personality tests. One of the ones I've seen in the past to compare the four personality types to animals, you might be a beaver, busy, hardworking, industrious. You might be a Labrador retriever. You are friendly, outgoing, loyal, slobber a bit. You might be a, what was the other one, an otter. You were fun-loving, kind of carefree, that type of thing. You know, but you would come away thinking of yourself in one of these animal terms. Uh, most of us, oftentimes, perhaps at least, tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Scripture says don't do that, but no doubt we do. So maybe if I say, what kind of an animal uh, are you like? Maybe we're thinking of soaring eagles or graceful running horses or something like that. Maybe not. Maybe we're a chicken in the barnyard. I don't know. It is interesting, though, that when John the Baptist, Jesus Herald, compares him When he gives his first exclamation of introduction to Israel, he doesn't introduce Jesus as this glorious creature, but he identifies him as a lamb, as a lamb. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We'll actually be, when we, we're going to be in verses 35 and 36, but we're going to bring back verse 29, as I said we would when we looked through that passage earlier. Let me read those, and then we'll jump right in. John 1, 29... The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, Behold is the Greek ide or look, exclamation, see. Verse 35, again the next day John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. He looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. We're going to talk about this in two phases this morning. The first is we're going to look at Old Testament uses of lamb. Hi. Stand before I forget. At the end of service, when the kids are back in, we'll hold off. And if you would, I'll have you come up front and we'll, we'll pray over the Christmas boxes. Um, we'll look at Old Testament examples of lamb. You know, if we say, why is John saying the lamb of God? And I mean, most of us probably have a pretty good clue or a hint already. But for a Jew hearing this, what would their thoughts have been? What did the Old Testament say? What, what was their mindset when they hear this? That's what we'll look at first. And then we'll look at Jesus' role specifically as the lamb or the sin bearer. But if we ask the question, why is John identifying Jesus with a lamb? We want to look at some of the Old Testament texts that talk about a lamb. And the, this is actually... There's a ton of verses, and there's a ton of passages we could look at, but let me just mention a few, just to to give context to John's comments. The first one does not mention a lamb, but it's certainly worth mentioning this morning, and that is Genesis 3.21. If you remember Adam and Eve in the garden, it says first they're naked, but they're unashamed. That is, 
They're good to go. They and God are okay with each other. They sin, though, and one of the things it says immediately following, they realize they were naked, and now they feel shame. They never had shame before sin. Shame and sin are attached to one another. So you remember what they do? Now they feel deficient, and now they want to cover up their deficiency, their shame. And so they take leaves off of plants, fig leaves or otherwise, and they try and cover their private parts, their shame, their nakedness. And, of course, those leaves don't do a very good job. And in Genesis 3.21, it says that God covers them, but he does so not with leaves. He does so, it says, with the skins of animals. This is the first sacrifice, if you will. This is the first death of any kind of life form besides the spiritual death of Adam and Eve themselves. This is the first death in Scripture. And it's God doing the slaying. And he slays animals to take the skins to cover their sin and their shame. That's the first death. doesn't say a lamb. We assume probably typically that it was a lamb or a goat that God slew to cover their sin and nakedness. If you read through the rest of the early chapters of Genesis, you'll see the patriarchs, guys like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, building altars as they go through the land of Canaan. And as they do, they were offering on those altars typically lambs. One of the terms in the Old Testament for lambs is simply an animal from the flock. And actually, sometimes when we read that, it could actually have been a sheep or a goat. We're going to confine our comments to lamb simply because that's the, the phrase that John is using. But it could have been either, but it was one of these blameless, essentially, creatures from the flock, an innocent creature from the flock. So you have the patriarchs offering lambs on the altars as they go through the promised land. The text I want to spend the most time on this morning is perhaps the best-known lamb of the Old Testament and certainly one of the best-known passages, and that's out of Exodus 12, and that is the Passover lamb. And just to put this in context, you remember Israel has been... Israel, actually, Jacob and his descendants go down to Egypt to avoid the famine. And 430 years later... They have become a mighty nation in the land of Goshen there in the north of Egypt. And the pharaohs have become unfriendly to those prodigious Jews, and they've put them to forced slavery. And so they've been building the cities of the pharaohs, and life has become very, very difficult. And so God calls Moses, that former prince of Egypt, and says, I'm sending you down. You're going to lead Israel out from Egypt up here, back where I said I would bring them. If you remember to Abraham, God said, your children, your descendants will be slaves in the land of Egypt, 430 years, but then I'll bring them out. And so Moses goes down to get the job done. And if you remember, before this passage in Exodus 12, God tells Moses, you know what, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, but his heart is hard, and he's not going to let them go. And then I'm going to harden his heart because I'm going to use his decision, I'm going to stamp it, and I'm going to make his heart hard, confirm his decision so that I can perform all these miracles. At this point, nine of these miracles, which are plagues, have already fallen on Egypt. And Pharaoh, to each occasion, each opportunity to obey God, has said no thanks. So the tenth is here, and God has told Moses that the tenth plague is the death of the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt. Man and beast. And that's where we'll pick up here. You can look at Exodus 12 if you like. I'm actually going to skip through several 
verses just to make the point. But at verse 3, Exodus 12, God says to Moses, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. You shall keep it at your house until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill that lamb at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood... When you slew an animal, typically you slit its throat and it bled out over a bowl. You shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." And the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. Therefore, the name of the feast, Passover. I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You shall take a bunch of hyssop, branches of of a plant, and dip it in the blood in that bowl, which is in the basin, and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel, and the two doorposts, and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. It will come about, speaking of times in the future, when your children will say to you, what does this rite mean to you? You will say it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Clearly, in the Old Testament, this is one of the most vivid pictures, both of a lamb and of Jesus, which we'll talk about in a minute, as the role of a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. So here's the picture. God says judgment is coming, but there's a way out. You slay the lamb, your substitute. You smear the door of your house with that blood, and on all those homes, the destroyer, the angel of death, will pass over, and no one in that household will die. Now think about this for just a second. If you say, who could be protected from death in this situation? Frankly, anyone could be protected. And if you say, well, God says specifically he's judging the Egyptians, and he has made distinctions in the judgments, that's true, but the Egyptians could have been saved too. See, anyone who took God at his word and slew the lamb and put the blood over the door of their household, the angel would pass over any house with the blood applied to that door. Any house, every house, could have been protected. All it required, it didn't have anything to do with their personal merit. It didn't even in the end have to do with whether they were born Jewish or Egyptian. The thing that saved some or others died for lack of was all tied to a substitute whose blood would be smeared on the door of their house. 
That's what it came down to. Anyone could have been saved. Every household could have been saved. There didn't need to be death. There was for lack of the blood of a lamb on the door. In 1 Corinthians 5 later, Paul will say, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. He's telling those early Christians Jesus is that Passover lamb. So for those Egyptians, when death came, it didn't have to touch their household any more than the Jewish families. Here's this lamb. It's innocent. It's a year old. It's slain at twilight. Its blood is applied to the door. And when judgment comes, when death comes, any house with that lamb's blood applied is safe and is passed over related to that judgment and that death. So the Passover lamb clearly, think of yourself as a Jew in John's day, and he says, look, the lamb of God, maybe the Passover lamb is the first thought that comes to mind. God passed over the households whose doors were smeared with the blood of a lamb. Uh, think of this too, though. Think of another passage, probably less familiar to most of us, Numbers 28, 3 and 4. You know, if you go through the Pentateuch, take Genesis out, but go through uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, or if you just do a search for the term lamb, you'll see it in those four books a lot. Because once you get into the systems of sacrifices, the lamb comes up again and again and again. And there's burnt offerings, whole offerings, sin offerings, peace offerings, offerings on the Day of Atonement, feast offerings, etc., what I want to remind you of this morning from Numbers 28, 3 and 4, though, is this one. God speaking to Moses, Say to them, This is the offering by fire which you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs, one year old, without defect, as a continual burnt offering every day. You shall offer the one lamb in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Now just think of this. If you were a Jew, especially living in Jerusalem, Every morning and every evening, you were reminded of sin because a lamb was being slain on your behalf every morning and every evening. This was a way of life. Maybe when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, maybe they don't think of the Passover lamb. Maybe they think of the morning or the evening offering. But to be a Jew, especially in the southern region of Jerusalem, you knew the day started and the day ended every day, no exception, with a lamb being slain at the temple. Its blood poured out for the sins of the nation. This was a given every day, no exceptions. In fact, on feast days, of course, you'd multiply this. No day began or ended without a lamb being offered for the sins of the nation. In my mind, perhaps the second most famous lamb passage in the Old Testament is Isaiah 53. This is probably the most clear messianic passage in the Old Testament related to Jesus' first coming. There are others that describe his second coming, his coming in glory and power, but related to his first coming, there may be no passage more clear then Isaiah 53, identifying Jesus both as the Savior, as the Messiah, not in the, the guise that they thought he was coming as the, as the king, but as the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, I just want to mention a couple verses here. 
One is that Isaiah says, all we like sheep went astray. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed, this suffering servant. He was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. In the movie, Jesus of Nazareth, they do one of the best jobs I think I've seen in any of the biblical epic movies of quoting Isaiah 53, one of the characters does, as Jesus is crucified. And it's because it is one of the most clear identifications of Jesus in the Old Testament. It's very, very hard to get away without saying Jesus is the person described in Isaiah 53. Pretty much impossible. But he's described in that passage, this one who gets all of our sins laid on him is identified by Isaiah as this silent lamb who's led to slaughter. Our iniquity laid on him. So we've got this rich, rich Old Testament series of portraits of a lamb being slain for the sins of someone else. This lamb providing a covering or a protection for someone else. So John says, when Jesus comes, look, here's the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb. Uh, This phrase uh, in 129, Jesus is not just the Lamb of God, he's the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. I don't know if you've thought about this much. Uh, Jesus takes away the sin of, of the world. What in the world does that mean? Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let me follow up with another verse by our same author, John the Apostle. He says in 1 John 2, 2, the same thing that he does in John 1, 29. The phrase is a little different, but listen to this out of 1 John 2, verse 2. He himself, that is Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Propitiation just means that someone conciliates me to someone else, that there's a division, and I'm not right with someone, and to propitiate means I make them favorable again towards myself, or in this case towards someone else. 1 John 2 2 says that Jesus, related to the world, Jesus is the propitiation He says not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. If you study theology much, uh, there's a theological bent or perspective that says Jesus died only for the sins of the saved. That is, Jesus' death, his shed blood, was never meant to cover any more than the sins of those who would, in the end, be saved. And I think the rationale is something like this. If Jesus died for the sins of more people than were saved, somehow his death was wasted. Um, there's other things that go along with that line, but John 1.29 and 1 John 2.2, 2, it seems to me, clearly tell us this is simply not the case. This is not the case. Jesus is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He is the propitiation not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world. Now, if you say, so what, or what's the point, where does this go? Um, 
this means in the end, uh, for those who are separated from Christ for eternity, their separation is not primarily based on their sin. It is based on their rejection of Christ. Now just think about this for a second. It is true that we all sin and sin brings death. I'm not, this doesn't wash away any of the other clear scriptures. If you sin, you die. Genesis says that. Leviticus says that. It says, we know that. Romans says that. If we sin, we die. Sin brings death. These two verses, though, say that in Christ's death, in the Lamb being slain and His blood, it is, in essence, it covers the whole world. All the sins of the world are at least potentially from God's perspective, covered by the blood of Christ. So that if I go to hell and am separated from Christ eternally, it is not so much for the individual sins I commit. It is for my rejection of God's way out for me. Just picture yourself like this. You're an Egyptian. And you hear about this last judgment coming. And you hear all you have to do, in fact, you don't even have to slay a lamb. You know what? Just go knock on your Jewish neighbor's door and walk in and stay there for the night and you'd be saved. The provision for the sins of all the world are there in Christ's death and in His death. It's all there. People that are separated from Christ eternally in hell. This is a terrible thing. I I don't even like talking about it, frankly. I would not wish hell on, on anyone. But for those that are in hell, their individual sins, the sins they individually commit, do do have a price. And you know, just as in heaven, the deeds you and I do on earth, they have an effect in eternity. They don't save us, but your reward in heaven and mine are determined primarily by our faithfulness on the earth. You don't get to heaven by your your deeds, but God will reward you for your faithfulness post-conversion. For those in hell, they, they are not in hell primarily because of their sins. They're there for their rejection of Christ. We're in heaven because of Christ. We're in hell because we don't have Christ. Our individual sins then in hell determine the degree of our punishment. So someone says of a Hitler or something, he's in hell and some good Buddhist is in hell for rejecting Christ. What's the difference? Well, the the difference is the degree of punishment. Those who sin to greater degree and are separated from Christ in eternity, they will be punished to a greater degree. Jesus talks about this in the Gospels. Those who have lived moral lives, as it were, but who still rejected Christ, they will suffer less. That is their punishment, the degree of punishment in hell, separated from Christ for eternity, which is bad enough, will be less. So individual sin still comes into play, but the prime reason that they're in hell, separated from Christ forever, is not their individual sins. It's the rejection of the blood of the Lamb. It's the refusal to come under the covering God has provided in His Son. The Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the propitiation not for our sins only, but for those of the world. So just think about this for a minute. 
when you hear someone say, as you most definitely will, that God is narrow and judgmental, and by that they mean he is harsh or unfair, you need to remind yourself, and you can certainly remind them, that God is absolutely just, and he judges. It's not what he wants to be typified by. He says in Isaiah elsewhere, it's, he calls judgment his strange work. It's not what typifies his character, which is holy, but it's merciful. It's gracious, as we've already read in, in John chapter 1. He will judge, but those folks need to remember, Jesus died, and his death covers their sin. You can remind them, did you know Jesus died for your sins? John 1, 29. 1 John 2, 2. The God you say is harsh or judgmental paid for your sins at the expense of his son. Yes, he's just. Yes, he's righteous. Yes, he judges. But he's poured out his wrath against sin on his own son so he doesn't have to on you. So the payment's here. And if you want it, all you have to do is say yes to the blood of the Lamb. Imagine you're a patient in a cancer ward. And every other patient, just like you in that ward, has cancer. And the doctor comes in and he tells you, we've just got a miracle drug. I give you this one injection and your cancer is cured forever. And I say yes. And you say no. Or you say yes and I say no. We can't blame the doctor for our death because the cure is there and it's offered and it's free and it's available. We die because we reject the offer of the cure, the substitute. In Jesus' case, the one who dies in our place. Or in the the example of the Exodus, the lamb that's slain. You see, the provision's there for everyone. There's no sin which isn't potentially covered by Christ's death. It's simply if we're willing to come in and be saved. That's the bottom line. If you were one of those Egyptians in Egypt, your world, as it were, was under judgment. God says, I'm judging Egypt. And you know the comparison, one of the things we're supposed to get as we read this, this world, the world you and I live in today, Egypt was a type of the world opposed to God. The Egyptians were no better or worse than you and I. But God chose to use their culture and their nation at that time for a picture for you and I and actually for the, for the rest of the history following. That Egypt was like this whole world at odds with God. And Pharaoh was shaking his fist in the face of God saying, I will not bow down. I will not serve the God of Israel. <clears throat> and so God displays all these miracles. Everyone was an opportunity to serve God, to bow down and obey him. This world, just like Egypt, we erect all kinds of gods, don't we? Not necessarily statues. We're too sophisticated for that. But anything that we place between God and us is an idol. It's a god. And this world, our world, our Western materialistic culture is full of gods. Pleasure, money, things, success, fame, I mean, you name it. And God says of this world, just like Egypt, guys, judgment is coming. It's set. It's a given. In fact, think of this. In the coming tribulation for seven years, God, in fact, at least for three and a half of those seven years, 
God pours out his wrath on the world. And every judgment during that period is what? It's an opportunity to repent. And you know what you read in those chapters in Revelation? They refused to repent. That's just like Egypt. Every judgment, every plague was an opportunity to say, God, you're God. We acknowledge that and we submit ourselves to you. But this world, just like Egypt, no less than Egypt, is under God's judgment. And there's only one way out. And just as those Jews slayed the lamb and applied the blood, God says, John says here, behold the lamb of God. God has provided the lamb. We don't even have to buy the lamb. God has slain the lamb. You remember in Acts 4 and 5, it looks like the Jews and the Romans crucify Christ. Physically they do, but the apostles say, it was your predetermined will, Lord, that was fulfilled. Jesus wasn't somehow overcome. This was not an accident. This was God providing the world with a lamb, with a substitute. It's the same today as it was for the Jews and for the Egyptians in their day. Judgment is coming. It is absolutely clear. And when judgment, when God's wrath in one form or another comes upon the world, it's an opportunity to repent. It's an opportunity for us to remind others, judgment's coming, but God's provided a way out. First Peter, Peter says the same thing in verses 18 and 19 out of chapter 1. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. You were redeemed, Peter says, with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. Um, You know, if God wanted to, when he saved us, he could just take us out of this world. I mean, as far as salvation goes, you know, we'd be good to go. We'd be saved and ready to go home. That would be a good thing. I'm ready to go anytime. I've let the Lord know. Good to go anytime. Uh, but we're left here, as it were, like John the Baptist's. And part of our job is to say, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Christ you and I follow today is not the lion of the tribe of Judah. I meant to mention earlier, you know, this verse, uh, John 1.29, is one of the verses associated with our church's name, lion and lamb. The other one is out of Revelation. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he's not identified as the lion yet. The Christ you and I follow today is humble. He was the sacrifice for sin, and it's incumbent on us as it were, to bear his image. We are not sin bearers with Jesus. There was only one sin bearer, and that's not us, that's him. But we're called on to follow him as the Lamb of God. And that means things like bearing his image in meekness and humility. It means holiness. You remember the Lamb was spotless. We're we're called on to bear his image. Innocent, like that Lamb, And like John the Baptist, we're called on to tell others to cry out, as it were, look, see, behold, the Lamb. 
There he is. If people, if we ask that question we started with, if you're identified as an animal, do you and I bear that same image? Does the world around us see us as a lamb, not as the one who's bearing sin, but certainly the character of Christ and the ones who are pointing to that one great lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that one Passover lamb, that precious blood of the lamb, the spotless blood of Christ himself. We get to bear his image in meekness and lowliness and humility now, and we get to, we should be, calling out with John the Baptist, look, see, there he is, that is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And when you're talking to others, remind them, Jesus died for their sins. This isn't This is not exclusive. He takes away the sin of the world. There will be no excuse in in hell for attendance or occupancy in hell because this tells us that Jesus' death potentially covers all sin, everyone's sin. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Lord, I'm just struck. Um, I'm struck by the scripture that as you hung on the cross with your blood flowing out of your body through the nails the crown of thorns on your head that there were the Pharisees who had in in their own choice as it were put you there and they mocked and they scoffed you Lord and even as they did you were dying so that your blood would cover even their sin. That their sin, like ours, was the sin of the world and that you died, your death, your blood covered even the sins of those mocking your own sacrifice. Lord, thanks that your provision is so full, so complete, that no one need be separated from you. No one need fall under your judgment. Lord, we know that many will. But Lord, let it not be for lack of us crying out with John the Baptist, look and see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord Jesus, thank you for saving us, even us, Lord, we don't get any more saved by witnessing to others about you and your provision. But it's part of the job you've given us here as those who know you and have been saved. And Lord, I think of the passage in Exodus that when you judged the land with darkness, there was light in the Jewish dwellings. And Lord, I pray that as folks look at us, that Jesus' words, that we might so glorify you that men would see us and glorify God who's in heaven, that they might be drawn, Lord, to the light, that they might be drawn to those households where the blood of the Lamb has already been applied. Lord, we know that you love to save, that you so love the world that you sent your Son. And so, Lord, use us in bringing others under that shed blood of the Lamb that they can join you in heaven. 
Lord, thanks that judgment is your strange work. It is not what you delight in. You delight in mercy. And thanks that righteousness and judgment are met in your Son. Thanks for bringing us into your household through the blood of your Son, Jesus, the perfect Lamb. In his name we pray. Amen.